Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with our guest, Aaron Wright. He's a co-founder of Open Law, The Lao, Flamingo Dow, and he's also a law professor at Cardozo University. So we've got lots to talk about today. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Diana. It's really great to be here. So before we dive into all of the things that you're involved in, I want to hear a little bit more about your background. So how did you initially get into crypto? And then how did you get super involved into DAOs and NFTs? You know, as you noted, when you kick things off, I'm a professor at Cardozo Law School and also have done quite a bit in technology. Uh, so before joining Cardozo's faculty, I had the pleasure of working closely with folks in the Wikipedia ecosystem. I started a company which was sold to the for-profit sister project to Wikipedia called Wikia, and we helped grow that to be one of the top properties on the internet. As part of that process, just hanging around with folks in the Wikipedia ecosystem, I fell deeply in love with open source technology. I have a background in law, history, and economics, so not surprisingly, Bitcoin hit my uh, radar very early on. So starting in about 2011, I just began to fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I really began to think about Bitcoin as a protocol for money, which at the time was a really interesting concept. Now I think uh, folks have increasingly accepted that, that is one of its destinies. And when Ethereum launched, uh, I was also thinking about, about using blockchain technology or, or creating a protocol for law. That's you know in part what Ethereum uh, was aiming to do. Because of that, I I began to get very interested in the Ethereum project, the Ethereum ecosystem, and was fortunate enough to play a small role helping to launch Ethereum. You know, from that, I got to work closely uh, with Joe Lubin, Vitalik, and other other folks that were part of the initial Ethereum team, and wrote a book on blockchain law and policy. Uh, took some of the research related to the book that I wrote and began to apply that into uh, a project called Open Law. And a big part of the Ethereum ecosystem off the bat, and also the work that I've done has been thinking about new forms of organizations, including DAOs, and different ways in which blockchains can be used for IP, which um, covers NFTs. So I've, I've just been really thinking deeply about this space and different applications and, and how this entire new ecosystem can emerge, you know, pretty much for the past decade. You were one of the OGs, for sure. Since we're going to be talking a lot about DAOs in this episode, can you briefly just talk about like what is a DAO for people that aren't super familiar with it, just so they have some background and context for what we're about to talk about? Yeah, sure. So DAOs uh, are a concept that really began in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Dan Larimer, who happened to also start a number of projects, including EOS, uh, back in 2013, wrote an article in Bitcoin Magazine thinking about how a blockchain could be used to manage a corporation. He called it a decentralized autonomous corporation or a DAC. Uh, that concept got generalized by Vitalik in the Ethereum white paper. And lots of folks inside the Ethereum ecosystem began to think about, well, can we create new structures using a blockchain that are not necessarily corporations? So top-down hierarchical structures. Can we make more open-ended, more permissionless, uh, flatter organizations, and not only run by humans, but also run by algorithms? And so this concept of a DAO kind of took root in the Ethereum ecosystem. It's a little bit of a heady concept, but one way I like to think about it, or one way to kind of wrap your head around it, is that they're headless organizations. They don't have any leader. It's either entirely run by members, or over the long run, we may see DAOs that are increasingly run entirely by algorithms. So some folks have, have characterized Bitcoin as a DAO. It's entirely run by the miners and a handful of core developers, but the algorithm kind of sits in the center uh, and it's coordinating everybody's uh, activity. And not just the algorithm, but you know the core Bitcoin core software and nodes and all the other things that are put together in order to, to run Bitcoin. And what we're seeing on Ethereum is the ability to begin to set up not ones for an entire protocol, but for smaller groups of people. So another analogy that may take root if you're unfamiliar with DAOs is thinking about a DAO almost like a subreddit 
with a bank account and a bit more rules. And those rules uh, are rules that are embodied in smart contracts or potentially embodied in, in other documents like legal documents, et cetera, too. So hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, for sure. So there's definitely a lot of legal and regulatory uh, considerations when forming a DAO, and we'll dive into all of that. I want to dive into all of the projects that you're working on. So let's start with Open Law. Like you mentioned, it's uh, it's a, basically an online protocol for creating smart contracts, like legal agreements that aren't written by an attorney, but rather by a computer. And so tell me a little bit more about Open Law. Like, how did you get the idea for it? How did you start it? When did all of this happen? I think all of this is still super cutting edge. So how were you able to get traction for it? And how has it been going? Yeah, sure. So the concept around Open Law is really our attempt at building a Ricardian contracting system. There's been lots of technology that's come out of the cypherpunk movement which was a movement of cryptographers and technologists that really took root starting in the late 1980s. Bitcoin, in many ways, was the, one of the first projects or mainstream projects that came out of that movement. Uh, those cypherpunks were talking about digital currencies, digital assets, digital gold, uh, you know, for decades before we really saw it root in Bitcoin. Uh, at the same time, those same cypherpunks were thinking about uh, digital property, digital rights, and other ways to not just have digital assets, but digital assets with something that looks like property rights with rules around them. And in many ways, that's uh, a part of what Ethereum does. And the last leg in this kind of stool of the cypherpunks, and there was a couple others, but the last major leg was a recording contracting system. The idea here was we can definitely create digital assets using technology. We can apply some rules related to it, uh, but there's risks that are associated with transferring anything of value. And one idea to manage those risks was a system that used legal agreements, which we've used since the age of Mesopotamia to manage risk and have legal agreements that are not trapped in Word documents or trapped in paper documents and file cabinets, but have legal agreements that can be understood, comprehended, and processed by computers and secured cryptographically, uh, presumably by a blockchain. And so that's what we, we built with OpenLaw. We built a functioning you know, recording contracting system that enables us to take legal agreements and enables us to turn them into computer readable objects and interact with blockchain-based smart contracts, in particular Ethereum-based smart contracts. So we can begin to take advantage of the great things that we have in the traditional world when it comes to managing risk through legal contracts and then the speed, efficiency, and programmability of digital assets on Ethereum using smart contracts and uh, other token-based systems. So you, we kind of marry those two worlds together uh, and we've been applying that in the context of DAOs because it's a really great way to do that. Uh, when you get a group of people together, the risks increase and also uh, the potential efficiencies increase. So we can take the technology we use on the open law side to manage those risks and we can take the smart contracts uh, that we've helped build and other folks have helped build with us uh, to begin to you know, build these new forms of organizations. Got it. So for somebody that says wanting to form uh, an LLC or an entity or a DAO or anything like that, how would they go about using open law? Would they still need to hire an attorney to write up the contract for them and then open law simply puts it onto the blockchain? Or can they go on open law and there's already a template there for them and they're sort of just filling in the blanks? Yeah, so we're not uh, taking kind of a web to turnkey based approach. It's not like a rocket lawyer like service or some sort of turnkey legal technology service. Uh, really, at this point, we've been focused on applying our technology to build out a curated network of DAOs that includes includes the Lao, that includes uh, Flamingo DAO, Neptune DAO, which we just launched. There's another one coming in two weeks, and then about three more coming after that. So it's at this point a network of three DAOs. Uh, I imagine at some point next week it will be uh, or next year it'll be more like ten to twenty DAOs that all are using kind of the, the same core technology have, you know, in part overlapping membership, uh, new members flowing in, and are kind of focused on different areas and opportunities in the Ethereum ecosystem primarily. I think sometimes when people think about smart contracts, they think of, you know, computers basically replacing attorneys in the future. This isn't something that's going to put lawyers out of their jobs or completely take over, right? Well, I think it could, yeah. And over time, we may start building some more turnkey solutions. But at this point, it's such a nascent industry, we want to kind of nail the right approach from a legal regulatory perspective, from a smart contract perspective. And the last part about DAOs, which I think is underappreciated, is you really need uh, kind of somebody to shepherd along the community. Uh, so it's not top-down control, but there's a lot of operational support that's needed. Uh, going back to that analogy about 
DAOs being a little bit like subreddits with a bank account and rules. Well, most subreddits have a mod, and many of those mods are a core reason why those subreddits are successful. Uh, here, um, you know, what we do on our side is just make sure that we can clean up all the operational cruft. Um, you can know that you've got a DAO that's set up appropriately. You have all the operational piece, pieces handled, uh, and then you can just have kind of fun working with others in the, you know, with a category or area or topic that you're interested in. Uh, so we think that that's the right structure. We think that that's kind of what catalyzes really su successful communities. And I think it makes some intuitive sense if you've ever participated in any online communities that um, you can't kind of just do it by yourself. You need a little bit of help along the way. Yeah, 100%. So then looking farther into the future, maybe five years or even 10 years down the line, how do you see open law being used? Did you see it being used in the same way? Or how do you see this ecosystem developing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as digital assets become more important right now, there's like 2.x trillion dollars worth of digital assets, which is pretty incredible, especially if you think about it, even five years ago, when there was, you know, uh, 10 plus billion uh, dollars worth of digital assets. Uh, I think this ecosystem will just continue to grow uh, until people don't think, oh, oh there's a there's non-digital assets. I, I think at some point, every asset uh, that can be digitized will be digitized. It will be running and secured in some uh, in some way by blockchain or some blockchain-like technology. And as that happens, and as the value of transaction goes up, uh, the need for Ricardian contracting systems like OpenLaw will continue to grow. Right now, you know, in the context of the rest of the commercial world, a lot of the deals or transactions that occur in crypto land are comparatively small. They'd be barely noticed by somebody that's working in traditional finance or on Wall Street uh, or, you know, major uh, law firms or, or lawyers that put together massive, massive deals on a daily basis. Uh, so there's a long ramp up, I think, for digital assets. And as that happens, there'll be more and more use cases for recording contracting systems like Obama. Something that I'm always curious about, too, is like the legal profession as a whole is probably one of the most behind in terms of being technologically advanced. And so now we're talking, a, you know, like very cutting edge technology, like at the forefront of all of that. Do you see law firms like major law firms adopting this? Do you see law firms catching up? Do you see law schools teaching this sort of thing? Or maybe you teach this at Cardozo. I don't know. Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, lawyers lawyers are great in many ways and have a bad rap in many ways too. So they're smart, engaged, inter interested people. They are not great at technology yet. Uh, I think that's in part because the folks that run the legal industry tend to be even older than other, other industries. You kind of hit the nadir of your career as a lawyer, not in your 40s or 50s, but really in your 60s and 70s. So a lot of the folks that run major legal institutions just tend to be a little bit older. They also tend to be a bit more conservative and cautious, which has some benefits to it. But I do think the legal industry at some point will change. Uh, what that looks like, it's unclear. Uh, you can imagine, um, you know, smart contract-based systems and more standardized agreements beginning to take root, particularly in the blockchain ecosystem. You're starting to see certain transactions or certain DeFi protocols that are just entire deals, deals that lawyers would otherwise uh, negotiate. That may limit the, the amount of legal work that's required in some areas and may increase legal work as complexity increases as well. Uh, so it's always a mixed bag, just like anything else, just like we're seeing in finance, just like we're seeing with central banks, just like we're seeing, you know, frankly, right now with NFTs and media, the game is changing. The reason the game is changing is because we have this powerful new technology that can secure digital assets, apply rules around those digital assets, uh, and move them really fast. And lawyers, in many ways, are the architects of commercial transactions, right? They're the ones that put them together. They make sure that things are in order. So if more and more commercial activity moves onto a blockchain, I imagine crafty lawyers that have existed pretty much since the, the beginning of time or beginning of civilization will figure out a way to, to make sure that they're in the center of that world too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So I want to talk about the DAOs that you're involved in. The Lao was sort of the original one. And then from that has also spawned Flamingo DAO. And then you mentioned Neptune DAO as well. Tell me a little bit more about each one, how they're different. Why was each one started? We've been fascinated, particularly in the Ethereum community, with DAOs from the beginning, right? It was in the white paper. We saw early DAO experiments like the DAO itself, which caused a lot of drama in the Ethereum community. And for folks that are not familiar with the DAO, it was um, trying to do uh, a lot of what we're seeing today, pull together capital, support projects uh, that are in need of capital through a more democratically managed process. Uh, unfortunately, 
uh, both due to technical and legal reasons, the, the DAO was a spectacular failure. It collected a tremendous amount of ether, and then a hacker, attacker, insider, still not fully known, drained the DAO itself of assets. Uh, and kind of this really interesting experiment that really uh, geeked out a number of folks in the Ethereum ecosystem uh, kind of uh, ended. It caused a, a hard fork of, uh, of the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, a lot of fodder for Bitcoin maximalists to begin to scream at Ethereum folks. But this idea of DAOs never really dulled. So once people kind of pushed beyond PTS DAO, or after a couple of years passed, after we learned a little bit more about um, how to develop smart contracts, how to write them in a more secure manner, we began to see an increase, an uptick in the number of projects experimenting with DAOs, uh, including a really great project called Moloch DAO, which seemed to solve, at least in part, some of the technical challenges with the DAO itself in a really simple, elegant way. And Amin and James Young and other folks that worked on that really, uh, really deserve a lot of credit for the work that they did there. Uh, and it occurred to us uh, when we were looking at Moloch DAO that we should rebuild the DAO. Uh, we should rebuild the DAO in a way that works with U.S. law. And so we can begin to experiment uh, with these DAO structures here in the U.S. The thought was, if we can figure out how to do it in the U.S. in a way that worked uh, with the existing regulatory structure and scheme, uh, we'd be able to generalize this even further and hopefully generalize this across the globe. And the last example that we saw that kind of mirrored this was centralized exchanges. Uh, there was a number of early centralized exchanges before Coinbase and Kraken and the handful that we have in, here in the U.S., and they were really Wild Westy, right? There was security issues, there was hacks, uh, famous ones like Mt. Gox, and then Coinbase and the folks at Kraken and, and a number of other exchanges like Gemini, they said, look, we have this rule set here in the U.S., let's follow it, let's try to dot I's and cross T's when it came to a regulatory perspective, and we can bring digital assets to the masses. And that's what they did, right? Uh, that's why we're talking about it. That's why there's $2 trillion in assets that are floating around uh, different blockchains. It's because of the work of these centralized exchanges. We feel like the vision of DAOs are, are really important. Uh, they are going to become the native uh, organizational structure on the internet, and we need to figure out ways to push that forward. Uh, so we rebooted the DAO itself with the LAO. And the concept was similar. We pulled together capital. At this point, there's been about um, a little over $50 million that's been pulled into the Lao, and we back projects. Uh, so it launched just over a year ago. It has a little over 65 members. Uh, so it's a strong, but uh, not too large group of people. And we've supported a number of great projects. This hive mind is kind of sifted through uh, the noise and clutter and distractions of the internet and various different crypto projects. And we've seen it move really quick. We were, you know, uh, early supporters of projects like Tornado Cash. We were the first check into NFT marketplaces like, like Super Rare. Uh, we even found that we were beating out, you know, more established venture capital funds and crypto funds because we had 60 plus people combing through, you know, all the information on the internet to find the best projects. And collectively, we could see if those projects were good uh, by leaning on this this uh, collective group of, of folks. The projects that the Lao has backed has, has ranged beyond, you know, just the ones that I mentioned, uh, but really focused on lots of NFT opportunities, DeFi opportunities. And since a number of the members uh, of the Lao have been around uh, the Ethereum ecosystem from the beginning or are building, you know, significant protocols or have built significant protocols in the space, uh, we've also focused a lot on infrastructure, uh, decentralized file storage, DAO infrastructure, uh, personal tokens. There's different categories that we've been really focused on. Um, and kind of rooted in that, we got really excited about NFTs. Um, we began to think about actually acquiring NFTs directly in, into the Lao itself. We realized that wasn't a good fit. So we decided, uh, and the members decided to incubate a new DAO, and that's called Flamingo DAO. And we took the same hive mind approach and began to collect NFTs. Uh, that launched in October of last year. So before all the NFT hype uh, occurred, and we were fortunate enough to take the same hive mind approach, uh, begin to find great artists. Uh, begin to find great NFT opportunities, uh, and we've we've collected at this point I think about fifteen hundred uh, NFTs, which is which is pretty fast and and pretty cool as well. Wow, very cool. And then uh, Neptune DAO, which is the most recent one, can you talk a little about that as well? Yeah, so Neptune is kind of the the next DAO that we launched. Again, this came from members of the Lao itself. Uh, so we saw with a number of great projects during DeFi summer uh, that were doing fair launches that were trying to avoid traditional venture capital style project investment, that there would be a demand for some projects, maybe an increasing number, maybe maybe just a handful, to not just have some sort of 
support that was more venture style in nature, but actual support through the provision of liquidity. Um, and that really is what the core of Neptune is. It has about $30 million, uh, I guess $35 million worth of Ether that's collected, and it can support projects that exist already with liquidity if they need it, uh, you know, and or can help support projects that are trying to do fair launches or other, you know, other types of uh, novel ways to, to launch a project into an ecosystem. Um, and that same high mind approach is, is working there. We've already started to deploy capital, even though it launched just a couple weeks ago. And there's more that are coming. So there's going to be an internet museum that's coming that was incubated by uh, the members of uh, Flamingo. There's going to be an internet stable that's collecting NFT-based horses that's coming called Dark Horse. Uh, we're going to likely launch something related to both social tokens and the metaverse. Um, and you may see some of our NFTs itself in Flamingo uh, have their own DAO. So there's a lot cooking and uh, it's growing really fast. Wow. Okay. So when it comes to DAOs, I guess there are two areas where I'm particularly interested in. And the first is how do you structure a DAO to make it successful? And then the second is more of the legal ramifications around that. So talking about structure, when you have a DAO, you, you said the Lao has, I think, 60 or 65 members is what you said right now. Is that sort of where you guys are capping it at? Or is is there a cap for a DAO? And should DAOs have a cap for n the number of members? Yeah, so should, I think the answer is no. I mean, I think everybody would like to see very large DAOs that have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people participating in them. I don't think we're ready for that yet, both uh, for technical reasons and also for legal reasons. So in the US, in the abundance of caution, we've capped the number of members that can be in the Lao, Flamingo, and Neptune at 99 members. When you go beyond that, uh, you start to run into you know areas that may require uh, the organization to go public to file public documents, so uh, so that everybody understands what's going on, because you're touching more people. So the government, at least here in the U.S., naturally wants to want you to disclose more information related to how you operate. So that's why we have a 99 member cap, and that works pretty well. In order to manage the legal risks, we've wrapped the DAO and the underlying smart contracts in a legal entity, a limited liability company. We initially did this in Delaware. I think increasingly we'll probably do that in Wyoming uh, because Wyoming has recently passed some legislation that recognizes DAOs as entities, which is great. And then in terms of other uh, structuring, there's a lot of on-chain and also off-chain coordination. Uh, so everybody congregates in a Discord channel. It's very lively. Uh, people will identify opportunities. If it's in the Lao side, it'd be new projects that are coming out. If it's on the NFT side, it could be either new uh, NFTs from great artists or uh, or strategies or ideas or concepts that they, they've been thinking around. And then we also do in-person uh, coordination for some folks. They like that better. So we'll have weekly calls where people can check in and chat through things. Um, and as COVID has begun to recede, at least here in the US, we've even started to get folks together in person. So it's kind of a mix of on-chain, off-chain, a mix of just uh, hitting up different, uh, you know, channels like Discord servers or and or channels, you know, and or uh, calls, and kind of that that mix works. Some people like to just, you know, clank away on Discord. Some people only join the calls. Some people are just lurkers. It's a lot like a a message board, and we we're always surprised how many people do lurk. So even people that are quiet, they'll ask for information periodically or chime in with opportunities. Uh, so people definitely are paying attention. And I think the reason they're paying attention in the DAOs that we set up is because they're staked. You know, they've contributed a significant amount of their capital uh, to these projects. Um, everybody has their interests aligned because of that. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice group of folks. Um, everybody's kind of tied together financially and also thematically with the, uh, the general topic for the DAO itself. That's another question I had, too, is with regards to the buy-in, do you have equal buy-in for all members or are there different levels of buy-in? And then how does that then correlate with how much voting power you have? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a million ways in which you structure it. We, we just wanted to, to take a step forward. Uh, so the way we structured the Lao, at least initially, uh, you could contribute 120 Ether and receive 100,000 units in the, in, the, in the DAO itself. Uh, there was a, uh, initially 10 million units that were available. So uh, if you contributed 120 Ether, you'd receive you know, 1% of the voting weight in the DAO and 1% of the DAO's potential profits or losses. And you know things are looking pretty good on the Lao side, but only time will tell. 
once we go through a bear market, you know, how well this collective decision making was. And it was the same general concept with uh, Flamingo. And it was slightly different when it came to Neptune. The members are in complete control of how the DAO operates. So we've seen an allow, we've seen the members dilute themselves effectively. So they've decided to uh, make available to the public additional units, which other folks can purchase. That happened a couple months back and new members were able to join. They could purchase 100,000 units in allow and they were paying 310 Ether. Uh, on the Flamingo side, a similar model emerged where uh, new members had been let in. They could purchase 100,000 units, but uh, they were paying 330 Ether. Uh, so everything is in Ether. It's not in US dollars uh, or DAI or some other stable coin. Uh, we, we're, we're kind of OGs. We like Ether and we like to productively use it. If we can't productively uh, use our Ether, we might as well just hold it or stake it or do something else like that. Yeah, for sure. And so when a DAO is formed, I assume the Lao or any other DAO that's formed, there is a certain set of values that it's formed around or that the founders have and want the DAO to hold as well. And so when you keep growing the DAO, and right now, you know, they're limited for legal reasons to 99 in the future, if you have 10,000 people in a DAO, from the way that you think about it, like what would be the best way to think about membership and letting in new members? Is it really just like if you have the 120 Ether buy-in, then you're in? Or is there like another process that you have to go through to join a DAO? Yeah. So again, this is the way we constructed it. Uh, it was first come, first serve uh, when we launched it, right? We just kind of uh, opened it up. And if people were interested, they were able to join um, once all the initial units in the DAO were, were accounted for, uh, then it became completely up to the members to decide how they wanted to let new people in. So I don't think it needs to be based on the amount of Ether you have. It could be based on other factors as well. But it, what we've seen with the membership of both the Lao and Flamingo, if you're going to be diluting yourself, it's reasonable to, to kind of have a say in who's coming in. Like who, who is taking a little bit of yours? Are they growing the pie? And I think that that's somewhat reasonable. I imagine that we'll see lots of different models and ways that people bootstrap DAOs. Uh, what we like about what's occurring inside the, the Loud network is you've got all these folks at this point amongst the three DAOs, it's about 150 people. They're able to battle test ideas. They're able to say, hey, is this a good idea? You're able to do you know, a little bit of like product testing uh, around a concept to see if there's enough interest uh, internally before you kind of announce it to the world. And it branches out in a lot of really interesting ways. Like as an example, I don't think anybody two months ago, let, let alone six months ago, would imagine that members of Flamingo would want to pull together a DAO that's focused on building and breeding internet-based horses on uh, Zed Run. But that's what's happening this week. So like the internet, like a message board, like uh, a subreddit, it, things just kind of move in, in different directions. And the members are really in control, so they can express themselves. They can begin to, you know, do product planning if they're interested in something, or, or you know, bounce around ideas with others and see if there's a germ of an idea that can grow into something bigger. Um, and that I think is really powerful. Um, I think it's great that we've been able to get together online and like talk about issues. Um, sometimes that turns a little bit dark, and we just take down people on Twitter or, you know, publicly, or politicians or corporations, like and things like. Um, or hedge funds in the case of Wall Street bets. Here, I think it's a little bit more positive. We can get together, we can have a little bit of capital that's at people's disposal, and then we can build things that are a bit more productive. Santiago, who's a venture capitalist at Parify Capital and also has been doing stuff with Pleaser DAO, he had a really nice analogy that I'm going to, to take and credit him for it. But he said, you know, blockchains are in many ways the rails and DAOs are the trains. Uh, and this is how we kind of move things forward. This is how we move things around. This is how we do things more productively. And so that's probably what's the most exciting thing about being in this little pocket of the blockchain uh, world. Yeah, for sure. And then for the Lao and Flamingo and Neptune, do you guys have an option, like a rage quit option, if it grows too big and people are no longer aligned with the culture and the values, they can withdraw their money and get out? Yeah, so that was an innovation that the initial uh, developers of the Moloch V1 smart contracts had. So the thought was, you know, uh, how do we how do we get people to come to consensus about something? Um, and, you know, and how do we make sure that if you're not aligned anymore, you can leave easily? Uh, so one idea and one way to get consensus is to have a quorum. You have to have enough people that vote and has to be over usually like a 50% threshold. And then the organization can move forward. 
I think one of the innovations with Moloch and something that's not as appreciated, they changed that. They got rid of a quorum requirement. Instead, they said, let's make decision-making a little bit like the internet. If, if at the point in time when something's up for vote, there's more people that are saying yes than no, we're going to move forward, right? We don't need to have you know 50% of all the members to vote in order to move forward. Just those folks that are paying attention at that point in time, uh, if they say yes uh, to doing something and there's more yeses than no's, then we're going to you know have a grant, we're going to make an investment, we're going to purchase an NFT, et cetera. And that works really well because not everybody can pay attention at all times, right? It's not... Um, it's things move a little bit too quick. People are kind of pulled in too many different directions and that works. But at the same time, if you go in that direction and you don't agree with the, the will of the group, well, you should be able to leave. And so this notion of rage quitting or being able to kind of pull your capital, if you no longer feel like you're in alignment is a very strong right that all members have. Um, what we've seen though, is that if people do want to leave and we've had a, a handful of folks that have. There's such demand to be part of some of the DAOs we put together. They tend to just sell their interest to another member or transfer their interest to another member. Uh, so there's uh, also those opportunities as, as well. And to the extent that there's like a robust secondary market for joining these DAOs or some categories of DAOs, the need for rage quitting kind of goes down. Uh, so there's some interesting dynamic that's emerging there as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So going back to the legal side of things, you mentioned that the Lao is formed as an LLC in Delaware uh, now with why you know states like Wyoming, which I th- is Wyoming the only state right now, or are there other states that recognize DAOs as legal entities? Yeah, there's uh, Wyoming. I'd say has the most robust law, uh, so you can actually set up in Wyoming starting in July this year um, a DAO. So if you wanted to call it Diane DAO, you could right. You could you could go fill out some paperwork. Um, you know, have that recognized as a DAO, refer to yourself as a DAO, contract as a DAO. And that's subtle, but I think important. And the goal there is to is to begin to streamline the creation of, of DAOs, uh, make it a little bit easier, and hopefully get to some of the standardization, like we were talking about before, around DAOs, so that we can, can have turnkey solutions. Uh, the bill's not perfect. It went through the legislative process. Like all legislative processes, things get moved around. So some lawyers got grumpy about some of the language that was included because lawyers like to be grumpy. Um, but I imagine that we'll continue to see some evolution there. Outside of Wyoming, in Vermont, you can also set up a BB LLC, a blockchain-based LLC, which is pretty close to a DAO. Uh, but outside of those two jurisdictions, I'm not quite aware of any others that enable you to do it. Uh, so Wyoming is you know, the Wild West. They're trailblazers. They invented the LLC back in the 70s, and, and they're really leaning in heavily into DAOs as well. If it's successful and if it looks like a smart move for the state and there's a lot of productive activity, you know, really productive trains that are moving on on the rails, then I imagine other states in the U.S. will probably follow suit. We saw kind of the same trend with LLCs, uh, you know, from 1970 into the 80s and 90s. So uh, it's a pretty exciting time. I definitely need to go read the bill in Wyoming. But just to summarize for us, how is the way that DAOs will be set up in Wyoming, for instance, or even BB LLCs are set up in Vermont. How is that different from, say, like it, how an LLC is structured? Right now? Yeah, um, so it's similar, right? So LLCs are super flexible. If you're a developer, you know, an LLC is pretty much like uh, your free range. If you can you can do anything with them. So uh, as a lawyer, you can construct an LLC to be structured in lots and lots of different ways. You get a lot of flexibility. It's kind of a, a nice thing. Uh, if you are a corporate lawyer to to think about and use LLCs for that purpose. And that's their big advantage. They're hyper flexible. They can be run by managers. They can be run by members. They can uh, have hierarchy. They cannot have hierarchy. You can you know play around with the distribution of value through, through an LLC and you can change all the rules. So the thing that we did with the Wyoming Dow bill was we changed the default rules, like the rules that come out of the box. And that's ossified in a statute. Uh, so the way an LLC tends to work is when you join uh, an LLC, you owe the other members, the other participants in the LLC, fiduciary duties. It's a very fancy legal word, uh, but it basically means you have to treat them better than than other folks. And that works really well uh, for the context of a partnership and also for the context of an LLC. But if you could imagine having heightened duties uh, when you're participating in a, some subreddit-like uh, organization to folks that are also participating, it starts to make a lot less sense. Like imagine if you had to provide trolls on a subreddit the same duties that you would provide a, like a, a sophisticated business partner. It would be insane. Uh, so we flip some of the default rules uh, so that fiduciary duties are relaxed 
Uh, they're not waived. You can, you still have to treat people with respect. It's called uh, lawyers call that a, a duty of good faith and fair dealing. I like to say you can't be a bastard. Like that's another way to think about it. So you can't be mean to each other. You have to treat each other with respect. But at the same time, you're not you're not required to to provide some sort of heightened duty. Uh, the other thing that we modified was and really thought about is what's going to govern. Is it going to be the underlying smart contract code or is it going to be the legal agreements? Uh, so we created a hierarchy through the, the bill in the case that there was a dispute to know that you know people are really leaning into smart contracts when they're entering into a DAO. Uh, so if the smart contract or a vote or some other activity that occurred via the smart contracts uh, you know resulted in one in one direction and the legal documents said something else, well, we know that we're going to follow the decision or the activity or whatever happened with the smart contracts themselves. So these are very basic things and subtle things, but they're important. These are the types of things that ha- that become more important when something goes sideways, uh, when something falls apart, when people are hurt. Uh, they're going to look back into these legal documents and, and start to figure out what rights and obligations uh, uh, emerge. So look, if you want to play around with the DAO today, you want to do an MVP DAO, you probably don't need some sort of DAO that has a legal wrapper of some sort. But if you want to build a more substantive organization um, over time, it's going to become increasingly important to do that. You're going to need protections. You're going to get more folks that uh, have the potential to be hurt and more problems come up. I mean, we've seen this even with MakerDAO. MakerDAO Foundation got sued, right? Uh, I don't think when they were starting that back in 20, you know, I think it was 2013 or 20, uh, after that, 20, you know, 17 or whatever, right after Ethereum launched, yeah, I don't think anybody would have thought two things about, you know, thought about setting up some sort of uh, organization around MakerDAO. But now that they're getting sued, now that the total value of the project is increasing, these types of questions come into focus. Yeah, for sure. All right. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you really believe in the long term future of DAOs and you sort of see it seeping into like almost every aspect of our lives or at least our digital lives. So can you explain like more of what your long term vision is for DAOs? Like, let's say in 10 years, how do you see DAOs playing a role in our society? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think what we're seeing across the blockchain ecosystem is just a, a modernization of the commercial stack, right? Uh, we had gold and now we have Bitcoin. Uh, we have fiat currencies, now we have stable coins. And we have corporations and LLCs, um, and I think that they're increasingly going to be replaced by DAOs. Uh, you know, will gold go away? Probably not, right? Will fiat currencies go away? Probably not. Will corporations and LLCs go away? Probably not. Uh, but these new digital organizations, these things that are more digitally native, will just increasingly become important or increasingly com- become competitive with these legacy, uh, legacy commodities or legacy... Uh, organizations and or institutions. I think that DAOs are the native structure of the internet. If you think about how the internet operates, it's not hierarchical. It's much more like a swarm or like a mob or these unstructured groups that are uh, beginning to congregate and form. Um, And we see that today on social media, right? Just go on Twitter. You can see mobs forming literally by the, the moment. The problem is that these organizations are unstructured. And sometimes you need a little bit of meat a little bit of, of skeletal weight uh, as part of these organizations so that they don't fall apart, so that they can actually make a difference. And that's why I think DAOs ultimately will uh, succeed. I think that all these groups that are forming online, as the tooling gets better, as the regulatory clarity gets better, um, and as uh, more and more people become comfortable with digital assets, they'll increasingly look to form their community, their organization, their ecosystem as DAOs. And then some of those will become absolutely massive. And I think that that will mean that, you know, we'll start to see a flywheel where, you know, people look at these massive DAOs and then they want to start their own. And then, you know, they increasingly become competitive. I think the second reason and looking forward to the future why DAOs will succeed is they have a good shot at being more efficient than traditional organizations. Uh, they can sift through the noise and, you know, barrage of information that we see online a bit better. Um, so I think, uh, and this is still a hypothesis, I think they're going to start uh, to make better decisions in these top-down organizations. I think we're seeing glimmers of that inside of the lab. I think we, we're seeing that also inside of uh, Flamingo, where, where they were able to acquire a whole bunch of great NFTs, which look like they're really solid in terms of the total collection, better than you know just two general partners inside of a venture fund or an individual collector. And so if the decision-making is better, if the uh, organization is more efficient and if it hits the right timber and tone for the internet, I just don't see how there's not at some point 
you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if not more of these organizations. And I think the last piece is they're globally native off the bat, right? Uh, They're kind of assuming where lots of folks are, uh, and particularly folks that are heavy into the crypto space or just on the internet itself, they're global in nature, right? They're not assuming that there's arbitrary geographic uh, lines uh, that divide people. Uh, They're assuming that people will want to interact with people across the country and across the globe. And I think that that also is right. Uh, If you're setting up a startup now, you probably have workers in the US and Europe and parts of Asia, South America, you know, possibly Australia and Africa too, right? All all continents, it doesn't really matter to you. You're just trying to find like-minded people to build something or push things forward. And I think that's going to be no different if you're setting up something for investment purposes, if you're setting up something uh, to work together and provide services to create something. These geographic borders just don't matter as much. And DAOs will hopefully provide you a way to coordinate your activity, even though you may just talk to people over Zoom uh, or whatever future version of Zoom there may be, or you're just you know texting with somebody or messaging somebody in Discord. It really doesn't matter. So bright future for DAOs. It's coming. For sure. So as as DAOs start to grow, and if you were to you know sort of like try and predict the future as much as you can, which types of traditional organizations do you see being replaced by DAOs the soonest? So like one thing I guess that comes to my mind is VCs, you know, and we're seeing that already with a lot of Web3 companies, like instead of going the traditional VC route, they'll try to, they'll go to a DAO or try to get their own funding elsewhere. So what do you see, I guess, like for the future of VCs or for other types of companies, maybe that I'm not thinking about that you think will be like mostly or very much replaced by DAOs? Yeah, I mean, I think Silicon Valley will be completely virtualized. Uh, there's no reason, in my mind at least, at least um, theoretically, for lots of capital to support early stage companies should come from a small sliver of one country in the U.S. Right? California is a wonderful state. Silicon Valley is an amazing engine of innovation. The notion that you have to be physically located in a small band of land in order to start a company just makes little sense in my mind. Um, and I think that DAOs will be the engine. They will be the trains that open up Silicon Valley and virtualize it uh, into the cloud, right? Into this uh, Web3 computer that we're all building on Ethereum. Uh, but I think that that's like the tip of the iceberg. People in the crypto space are obsessed with VCs, but VCs in the category of investment funds are like a very small sliver, right? Major law firms in New York won't even do work for VCs because it's not worth their time because they're focused in on hedge funds and private equity funds and much larger vehicles. And I think that those are going to be ripe for disruption too. You know, I think we're seeing kind of these internet-based investment vehicles like, uh, or early prototypes of them, like Wall Street Bets, that I think will mature over time and gravitate to the DAO ecosystem as well. So even if you want to do something that's not really venture-based, but more investment-based, and you want to have a more structured version of Wall Street Bets, uh, which I think folks are seeing some demand for, even the Wall Street Bets folks are, are playing around with this they're going to probably gravitate to DAOs over time. And then I think the last area is worker. You know, workers are folks that provide services. We're starting to see glimmers of this in the NFT space where a bunch of digital artists are coming together to make something new. Uh, You know, sometimes you can create some great work by yourself. Lots of creative endeavors require the work of a bunch of different people. All these services-based DAOs, I think, are also going to come together as well. You know, maybe you provide services like design work or web development services or, you know, some other type of service. You can do a little bit yourself, but you can do a lot more banding together. Uh, you know, maybe you see some sort of meta DAO that that emerges that that does that. We've seen some early examples of that with great projects at Great Guild. We've seen some you know other examples of that also emerging. So I think that that that's another broad category. And then the last are just you know protocol DAOs. We, we've seen a whole bunch of them. Uh, so if we're building this uh, open source, open financial infrastructure that we're seeing in DeFi, and you want to have the community govern and manage it in different ways, well, you're going to need a little bit of structure around that, right? It can't just be this amorphous blob. Uh, It can't become that important unless people have a a vehicle or means to begin to organize their affairs. Uh, People are doing that now, you know, with some sort of snapshot style voting. But some of these projects are becoming really big, right? Uniswap is really big. Compound is really big. They have huge treasuries. And once you become that big, you're going to have to Bridge into the real world. That's when these Ricardian contracting systems become more important. You know, in order for you to to really make the full difference that you want, the experimentation phase is over. Now you kind of have to upgrade to 
you know, to something a little bit more mature. And I think we'll start to see these projects increasingly play around with DAOs and, you know, possibly some of the stuff that happened in Wyoming uh, can be useful for those projects as well. Another thing that I want to get your sort of like future pulse on is NFTs, since I know you're pretty deep into that as well. So right now, the main use case we're seeing for NFTs is just NFT art. Looking forward to maybe the next year, the next five, 10 years, what do you see as being the next big use case for NFTs? Or how do you see NFTs developing and being used in the long term? Yeah, so NFTs are super interesting. They're interesting because in many ways, they're kind of the first uh, non-cryptocurrency based digital property. And so in my mind, I think that they are the tip of the sphere for the digitization of all forms of property, not just uh, you know media objects and artifacts like we're, what we're seeing with, with NFTs, but all forms of property. I think the future of NFTs is just slowly eating its way through other forms of property. At some point, we will have land that is represented by a token that can interact with um, you know different blockchain-based protocols like DeFi and can hopefully be moved around more seamlessly than what we have today. Uh, we're not ready for that collectively as an ecosystem at the technical level, at the regulatory level, uh, or at the user base level, but at some point we will be. And so in my mind, what we're seeing with the NFTs is similar to what we saw with e-commerce back in the 90s. You know, Amazon figured out how to do e-commerce with books. And just pause and think about that for a second. They took a very simple object, a book, and figured out all of the, the difficulties of transporting that around the US, transporting that around to different parts of the globe. Uh, and once they nailed that, they generalized that so that you probably, if you are in the US receiving you know, tens, if not hundreds of Amazon packages um, you know, a week or a month or you know, how often you use Amazon, the same types of mechanics are getting figured out now with digital property. But instead of books, people are using art. And, and once people figure that out, it will expand into other types of assets. Maybe that's real, into, you know, more robust intellectual property like we we're seeing with Top Shot. Uh, but I do think ultimately it will be the biggest asset class that hasn't really hit blockchains yet, which is property, like land, real property, what lawyers would call real property. Uh, so I think that it's super bright for NFTs. There's a lot of mechanics that need to be figured out. The intersection between NFTs and DeFi is fascinating. It's something that we've been fascinated with inside the Lao and also inside of, uh, of Flamingo. And I also think that uh, NFTs will increasingly be used in areas like gaming, which is kind of one end of the spectrum. So, you know, smaller NFTs, NFTs that are lower value. And then on the other, other hand, uh, I think we're going to start to see NFTs used for more complex financial instruments. So uh, it's a way different than art, uh, but an NFT is really like a digital property, digital right, right schema. So you can begin to embed into NFTs actual addresses or bank accounts. There's some interesting projects that are doing that. And once you have that, you have pretty much a tradable contract itself. So you can model out very, very complex financial instruments using NFTs. And I think we'll start to see more of that over the next five to 10 uh, years. Yeah, I think that's still sort of hard for people to wrap their heads around because we're still trying, most people are still trying to understand what NFTs are at the core. And then to sort of wrap NFTs in NFTs or other things is definitely going to be something that's interesting to see in the future. So Aaron, thank you so much for being here today. This last last quick segment before we close out, I call explain your tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter, pull out some interesting or cryptic tweets and give you a chance to explain it. Uh, the funny thing is you actually have already explained on your own most of the tweets that I'd pulled out. So this is going to be a quick one, but one quick one from May 3rd that I found, you said, DAOs will productively capture collective intelligence. This hopefully will serve as a counterweight and complement to artificial intelligence. I don't think we've touched upon that yet, sort of the intersection of DAOs and AI. So can you explain that? Yeah. So, you know, the, the longest term vision, and look, we don't, we don't yet see this in earnest, is to have DAOs that are entirely run by an algorithm. Uh, so you can imagine uh, DAOs uh, in some ways being used to constrain an algorithm in some way. Uh, so we see this a little bit with DeFi, right? Um, like humans have to weigh in on certain parameters in certain DeFi protocols to kind of keep them on the rails. You can imagine more complex algorithms being embodied in smart contracts and not in any you know blockchain or smart contract-based system that we have today. But I'm assuming like all computing, it's just going to get better, faster. And at some point, they'll be able to handle um, you know more complex algorithms. I could be wrong about that, but I just like that thought experiment. Let's imagine that blockchains actually scale. Let's imagine that they can handle more complex software uh, and more more complex code. Uh, 
Uh, and maybe that happens in 50 years. Uh, maybe that happens in 100 years. But at some point, I imagine the clever technologists will figure that out. The algorithms will be more uh, complex. Now, AI is scary to lots of folks. They're worried about its emergent behavior. They're worried that it's going to go uh, sideways. They're worried that it's going to go off the rails. Well, you could imagine embedding in uh, through a DAO structure more human decision making to kind of cabin things in uh, to, to keep some control over those algorithms. And maybe that's not true, but I think it's an interesting uh, kind of concept. I think lots of folks that are fascinated with AI, it's hard not to be. They're worried about these things, but they're not assuming that you could actually and potentially uh, have humans that are, are kind of there, uh, you know, keeping it in check. So that was what that tweet was about. Sorry to get theoretical. I think it's all of that is definitely possible for sure. All right. Well, Aaron, before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally, and then also where they can learn more about Open Law and where how, how they can join the Lao, Flamingo, Neptune, and keep up with any future DAOs that they might be interested in. Yeah, sure. So best place to find me is on Twitter, A-W-R-I-G-H-0-1. Um, if you want to learn more about the Lao, it's thelao.io. Flamingo, it's flamingodao.xyz. Neptune, neptunedao.xyz. And you know, Twitter is usually the best place to to stay on top of things. And if you go to any of those sites, there's links to you know Discord, Telegram, all these other channels. Uh, and then an open law, it's an open source project. You can go to openlaw.io uh, just to check check that out if you're interested in helping out or making that better. Yeah, please give us a you know drop us a note. Perfect. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. All right. Thanks, Anna. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.